0: All right. well we'll just go ahead and begin. Welcome, Um, really excited to introduce you all, if you weren't at chapel yesterday, to Robert Smith Jr. He's the um, Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School at Samford University, and uh, has won a lot of other awards and recognitions, but I want to tell you before we get started about his books, um, because I think this is really important for you all to know, we'll talk about them a little bit but I just want to recommend them all to you, starting with his book on preaching, Doctrine and the Dances. He's the author of Doctrine and the Dances, which was the winner, my copy says, the winner of the Book of the Year for Preaching Magazine. He's also written uh, The Oasis of God from Morning to Morning, which I would strongly recommend to you um, if you're wanting to read about grief lament, um, about putting your, putting your hope in God, The Oasis of God, and then a contributor to two volumes in honor of, I know, two, two great friends of his, Worship, Tradition, and Engagement, Essays in Honor of Timothy George, and Our Sufficiency is of God, Essays on Preaching, in Honor of Gardner Calvin Taylor. And so I would recommend every one of these books to you. I've read them all. And um, I don't think that you'll find uh, much better volumes on on preaching or exposition or what it means to be worshipers who teach the Word of God. But more than his books, I'm really excited to uh, be with you this morning to talk with Dr. Smith because what you get to see here is a little bit of father-son time. (laughs) Um, I went to Beeson Divinity School. Uh, Dr. Smith was my mentor. I served as his TA there. And uh, we've traveled together, eaten together. He's invested in me and my wife. And so I want to say at the outset that what you're hearing is not just from a great preacher. Uh, he's not just a, a great um, communicator or a great theologian, but Dr. Smith really is one of the best men uh, that I've ever known, and truly a father to me in the ministry. And so I want to commend him to you and the words he's about to share with you on the basis of his love for Jesus and uh, his character. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Smith.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I want to start off uh, by talking about preaching. It's probably a big shock. You would start with preaching. <laughs> um, so, everybody wants to talk with you about preaching, hear what you have to say about preaching. And I wanted to start by asking you about your definition of preaching. Uh, you say that preaching um, is the goal of preaching is to exegetically usher the hearer by the inspired text of God into the presence of Christ through the power of the Spirit for the purpose of transformation. Mm-hmm. I was wondering. Your, your definition of preaching is so different from Haddon Robinson or John Stott or other well-known preachers. How did you come to that definition of preaching?
1: Well, the key for me is this matter of uh, ushering um, the hearer by the word of God. It's Trinitarian. To exegetically usher the hearer by the word of God because I have nothing to <clears throat> take people to God except the Word. So it is to usher people into the presence of God uh, for the purpose of transformation by the Word of God. So this idea of Trinitarian presence is, is crucial for me. Mm-hmm. I take you by the Word of God and lead you into the presence of Christ, the Son of God. I'm using the uh, metaphor that's afforded us in Galatians 3, 24, that the law was a patogogos, was a trainer, um, was a tutor, uh, was an usher that leads to Christ. The law could not transform at all. All the law could do would would be to show us a mirror so that we could see ourselves, our sins. But mirrors don't transform.
0: Mm.
1: When I see the mirror, because the law has afforded me to see myself in the mirror the law then leads me to Christ who is the laver who is the fountain that's filled with blood that washes away my sin I've got to first acknowledge my sin and see that I need cleansing Mm. and when I see that I'm led to Christ who is the fountain who cleanses me which leads me to the third thing I do it by the power of God Mm. Not by my intellect, not by my oratorical skills or whatever, but I do it through the power of God so that when I lead you, um, dear son Griffin, to the throne room, Mm -hmm. you go into the throne room with the Trinitarian God, the door is shut, there's no room for me. My job is over. That's what makes preaching really easy. I'm not responsible for your transformation. I'm responsible Mm -hmm. for your transportation to get you to Mm -hmm. the throne. That's good. The door is shut and something happens in that throne room and you come out, a newborn babe, and then my job of discipleship begins. I become a midwife to deliver you. Mm -hmm. I didn't produce you, but I deliver what the Trinitarian God has produced. And therefore, I begin to disciple you so that you can grow into the nature and the statue of the fullness of Christ. So it's it's Trinitarian uh, and uh, yet it's divine human instrumentality. I do what I can do, I lead you to the throne room, the door is shut and then God does what only He can do and that is to transform. So you don't ever have to feel discouraged Mm. after you've preached and nothing has happened. Your job is not to transform, it is to inform Mm. and then God will do what He will do instantaneously or eventually.
0: You hear people talking about preaching and they want to make this distinction between preaching and teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of preaching books want to make clear that you're not just supposed to be teaching the people but you're preaching to them. I know we've used the language of a preaching moment. Mm-hmm. There's something unique about the preaching moment. Would you make that distinction? And If you would, what's unique about preaching?
1: Well, Demar Lloyd-Jones and his work Preaching and Preachers, his classic work, which you read and every student at Beeson of any school of my classes must read in the fall of each semester. I said, and my mother told me this as well, that you take a cow and you milk the cow, you gather the milk, you let it settle, she says, clabber for a while, and then you take and churn it, and then after you've churned it sufficiently, the butter will rise and then you have buttermilk at the bottom there's the butter at the top you skim off the butter mm. and then use the buttermilk we use golden flake when i was a boy uh, and that would be it What mama was saying and what d martin lord jones was saying is you don't add anything to what turns milk into butter mm. how do you know when butter becomes when milk becomes butter all you do is churn So As far as I'm concerned, that's the mystery of preaching. I don't add anything to it. Mm. The Spirit churns it, and my words are transformed into the living Word, which addresses people where they are. So for me, you can teach without necessarily preaching, Mm. because teaching is for discipleship. Mm. Preaching... is for salvation. So I Mm. initiate people into the faith through proclamation. That's preaching. Mm. But I instruct people about the faith, that's for maturation. Mm. So I teach in order to mature and move Mm. the infant into adulthood and move Mm. a baby that drinks milk into uh, uh, an adult that eats meat. Teaching is content. Preaching is intent. Intent is to get the person saved. Content is to move the person along in spiritual maturity. So that's why D. Lord Jones could on Friday night take and teach expository messages. That's why he preached, never preached through Romans. He got to about the 14th uh, chapter. Mm. But it took him about 13 and a half years. Never finished. But Friday night was saints night. It was to teach people who were Christians so that they could grow. Mm. Sunday night was evangelism right. for folk who needed to be initiated into the faith so that they could be saved. Mm. So uh, I just I just think that you can't really <clears throat> preach without doing some teaching, but you can teach without preaching in terms of maturing individuals. And mm. in, in a way, it's a false dichotomy. I just say preach and let the Spirit do this and whether you call it teaching or preaching it doesn't matter. He's going to do it. That's right. That's
0: right. I know you preach some of your best sermons just sitting across the table from me. Small audience, but very effective sermons. Um, when you preach, as you did yesterday in chapel, a lot of times I think for for students like us, first thing in your mind is how does he do that? Um, it's not just about style. It's about the sheer mass of scripture that you use. It's about how you connect various threads together, how you bring in illustrations, how you organize your work. Could you talk just a little bit about your process in preparation? Maybe your process and things that are particular to you and then some of the things that you would recommend for anyone.
1: Well, whatever you saw yesterday was not a a solo effort. Um, It was a duo effort. Mm. Spirit, and humanity working together. I'm not trying to be spiritual. That's just the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, Griffin, to be honest with you, when I get into the pulpit, and I like that. Mm. In a way, it's inductive. Mm. I don't master it. I'm discovering it, which gives me a chance to trust The pneumatological editing for Mm. the spirit to edit things, change, expand things, reduce things, Mm. even to excise and cut out things. I like that. Mm. Now I'm going to go there of course as a singer with a full musical score, know Mm. exactly what I want to play, but Mm. sometimes a musician will improvise and will play notes that are not written on the musical score. Right. and when you ask that musician play that number again exactly the way you played it he or she will say I can't do it <laughs> I, there were notes there that were yeah. not even imagined but I was able to hit them I mean, I mean, so I, I think it's important to uh, prepare as Demar Lord jones would say prepare carefully preach freely mm. if you prepare carefully you can be free about preaching mm. But if you don't... I, I told the group yesterday, Martin Lord jones forgive me for quoting him so much, but... Uh, he's a
0: decent preacher. Yeah, he's okay. pretty good. Yeah. Uh,
1: but he said, a person who goes into the pulpit unprepared is a fool. Mm. Because then you're presuming on God. Mm. But a person who goes in the pulpit fully prepared and depends totally upon their preparation is a double fool. Mm. Because if I'm unprepared... You know what I'm going to say to the Lord? you got to do this today. And I open up myself. But I'm so full of myself and I'm so prepared. And I say to God, now you can just sit out on this. Let heaven watch me. i got this together. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wow these individuals. Then it is a straight shot Main Street downtown Flunkersville because I am depending <laughs> totally upon myself. Now, what I would suggest, you ask me this question, in terms of application... I'm an exegetical weaver. I want to weave explanation, illustration, and application Mm -hmm. throughout the sermon. And then at the end, I want to, as we say, here's some things you can take home. In other words, if I wait 30 minutes and then give application and just deal with backgrounds and all of that, then the people may not be around for the application at the Mm -hmm. end. I want to keep them close to me so that they can see how, as I walk through the text, how this is Mm -hmm. applying to them throughout. And then at the end, then I have this crescendo, the, the Mount Everest, the apex of my application, which in essence takes and ushers them into the proposition that I've, I've already articulated.
0: Right. So in a, in a detailed way of asking that question, though, do you write a full manuscript oh, yeah, every time? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you condense that to an outline, or do you just begin internalizing?
1: I wish I had made co- I've got copies for... Uh, Um, the Bible Exposition class today. I had Mm. one yesterday. But it is the fully written manuscript, Mm. but it shows the crystal-centric outline, how the outline has informed the writing of the manuscript. Mm. And that's important because what I want to do, in the words of T.S. Eliot, I want to turn my blood in the ink, myself in the ink, so I can write it down. Mm. But in the words of Charles Bartow, who taught preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. I want to turn ink in the blood. Mm. I want to take the ink of the manuscript and turn it into the blood of my life so that I become the embodied uh, manuscript. Mm. Uh, And I'm preaching because it's gotten in me, Mm. not because it's external, it's an internal thing. Just Mm. like your ABCs. I bet you can say ABCs without having to think about it. You know why? Because it's internalized. Right. But when you learned it at first, you struggled, and you learned how to sing it. A, B, C, you don't talk about it. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something you haven't said, talking about your preparation, that I'd like for you to talk about. um, Well, let me back up for a second. You've told me many times, when I've asked about the Spirit in preaching, or unction in preaching, you've said, the Spirit is in the study. Yeah. And... um, You haven't talked about prayer yet, though. I know that prayer is so integral to your preparation. Could you talk about the role of prayer both in the preparation for preaching and in the act of preaching?
1: Well, the Spirit is the before preacher. Mm -hmm. The Spirit is the during preacher. And in the words of John Wesley, the Spirit is the after preacher. The Spirit is preaching even after the benediction. I think that prayer ought to be a reality in perpetuity. Mm. That I'm praying even when I'm not aware that I'm praying Mm. because I've gotten into this mode of praying that my spirit is praying even, and that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, even when my mind is not conscious of Mm. it. So I think I need to be immersed. I was just telling the Lord this morning, just walking over, over here with the brother. Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity, but I can't do this. Mm. That's not modesty. That's just reality. Mm. And uh, so, and it, it, it's, it's in other words, like Brother Lawrence, it's it's you're praying the presence of God. Yeah. You're walking. You know, you, you you're not. It's not the posture. You know, it's the mindset. It's it's it is uh, a, a prayer that doesn't have an amen at the end. You don't need to say, man, because what you're saying is, when you come to the end, I'll talk to you um, the next time, whether right. it's here or there. Because prayer is unending. So I think even uh, the black preacher would say sometimes, uh, standing in the pulpit, he would say, "Lord, help us." Mm. That's a prayer. Mm. Uh, he senses he needs the anointing, the 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 the, the, the spirit that is. Um, um, has run over. You want the Spirit to run over in your project. Right. Ephesians 5.18. Uh, keep on being. That's the tense. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Mm. So that, that, that becomes that moment even in preaching where if you don't say it out loud you, you know, and, and you'll get to the, you've been there, you're mm-hmm. young, but you get to a place and you're struggling to reconnect with where you know you ought to be. You know, and in other words, you're lost and you start saying things like, now, as we consider to consider to look at this particular text that claims our attention as it continues to influence and mold and shape. Well, you know what I'm doing? I'm praying. I need some space. I'm lost. That's really what I'm saying. I said all those things because I'm saying, Lord, help me, because I don't know where I'm going now. And then when it comes back, I say, thank you, Lord. Nobody knows that, but that's really what's happening. That's what's happening.
0: That's right. That's funny. Um, I want to move away from you as a preacher for just one second and talk about you as a congregant. Uh Because anybody who's had your class, probably the thing that stands out, maybe the most, is as other people are preaching, you are giving verbal feedback regularly. Sometimes you're saying, well, sometimes you're saying, come on, brother. I've heard during some rougher sermons you say, uh, Lord, help him. (laughs) Uh, So... um,
1: I've heard you say, Lord,
0: please help us." <laughs> under no, my sermons.
1: Um, oh, I don't think I said it to you.
0: No, no but could you, uh, could you talk a little bit about the role of the congregation in preaching? Uh, I know especially for us uh, in a Southern Baptist context, there are Southern Baptist churches that are ameners, but a lot of us kind of sit there with our hands in our lap during the sermon. What, what role does the congregation play in the preaching moment?
1: You know, Augustine in his work, The Doctrine of Christianity, on Christian doctrine or teaching Christianity, Christianity, he says, I know when I have preached effectively, not when people applaud, but when they weep. Mm. So for me, it's not talk back that fuels me, it's feel back where you can feel the congregation you can look in their eyes you can see a person leaning forward you can see an individual doing this Mm. you can see tears coming down or you can see individuals who are mad you know why what they really want to say to you is please stop you almost (laughs) got me almost persuaded me to be a christian Mm. you're convicting me with please please and you got to go on so Mm. is this the, the um... I don't think it's a Southern Baptist thing, I don't think it's National Baptist, I don't think it's Pentecostal, I don't think, I I think that when the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God, there has to be some response. And just because an individual does not verbalize that, does not mean that that individual is not saying amen. You know we sing the song, uh, praise the Lord, let the amens rain from his people again. I often wonder why do we sing that? Reign from his people again. And we don't say amen. Okay. Say amen. Well, the reason why you don't say amen sometimes is because you don't want to be the only one. But sometimes as a preacher, you've got to say amen yourself. <laughs> Just go on and say that's People right. have to say amen. You preach in such a way that you're saying amen and you feel it. Mm. Why is it that everybody will laugh when there's something of a joke that's being told? But when there's something profound from the word of God, why is it that we silent Mm. let there be freedom and um, feel the freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is there's liberty let there be liberty in doing it and it has nothing to do I tell folk this with the soil that you own the gospel will work on black soil white soil brown soil Mm. red soil yellow soil it will amen so just preach and if nobody says Amen, as Job says, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. As long as heaven is saying Amen, and God is saying, "Son, I knew I could mm. depend upon you," I'm satisfied. That's good.
0: That's good. And sometimes uh, no one is better at saying, you know, stand up, stand up for Jesus while sitting down, yeah. or stand saying, "We lift our promises. hands to Christ with our hands in our pockets," That's right? Or we say Amen, but we're not saying anything. Than right. us sometimes. Um, on the topic of expository preaching, you said something in your sermon yesterday. You said an expository sermon, something to the effect of an expository sermon is not expository until it has magnified Christ. Yeah. Now, there's a big debate in preaching. Uh, I, I was at a conference recently and and saw this hash out during a paper about Christ-centered preaching. Yeah. Um, some of the accusations that were made were, well, if you, if you have this Christotelic hermeneutic or... If you're trying to preach in a Christ-centered way, you actually will just preach the same sermon every week. You're always going to the same place. You're not, you're not being true to the text. I mean, Jesus isn't in every passage to the point that someone actually said, you know, we as preachers need to be careful not to make a beeline to Jesus. Yeah. I know that's not your preaching style. Could you tell us why, um, or, or your preaching conviction, could you tell us why you advocate for a Christ-centered hermeneutic? Why you are so adamant to take every text to Christ?
1: Well, I, I, I believe Jesus. Mm. Jesus says in Luke 24 27 talking to these two disciples, at large disciples one whose name was Cleopas, the other is unnamed, mm. that he expounded dear Manusen he expounded to them From Moses, that's the first part of the Hebrew Bible, through um, the prophets, Mm. and then the writings. Verse 44 says the writings. So that's the whole Hebrew Bible. How those things that were written were written about him. Mm. That's that's the Old Testament. You can't find Jesus in the Old Testament. Surely you can't. Mm. Can you? Yes. I think the Old Testament is right there. Mm. typologically, by necessity, even analogically, illustratively. Mm. Jesus says, it was written concerning me. Mm. So I go into every text and I want to treat the text never in isolation from the Bible, but in connection. No text stands by itself alone. It doesn't. I want to go into the text smelling Jesus. Mm. Can I taste him? Do I hear him? Mm. How does he feel? Do I see him? For instance,, mm. we miss things because we don't look for them. In John 18:18, 18, 18, Peter is warming his hands over charcoal fire. That seems insignificant why he's denying Jesus. What he needs is his heart to be warm. See? But he's warming his hands at the charcoal fire. denies him three times. But in John 21, verse nine. Peter sees the Lord on the Sea of Galilee, the the shore, takes his fish, 153 of them, and there he goes. Mm. And Jesus is grilling fish over charcoal fire. Mm. Helmut says that the olfactory gland, the nose, is the organ of remembrance. Mm. The olfactory gland, the smell, makes the unconscious conscious. I think that set Peter up. He didn't have to grill fish on the charcoal fire. He didn't grill fish when he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Mm. He just took fish, snatched fish from fish, and more fish came. Did the same thing with bread. He didn't plant any seed, so he didn't have to do that. But that that smell, that distinctive smell Mm. of the charcoal fire took Peter back three days so that now his heart is being convicted, ready for three questions that would mirror his three denials. Right. I got to go into the text smelling Jesus, looking for Jesus, etc. Mm-hmm. What gets me, Brother Griffin, it's an amazing thing. We are more divided now. We were more happy when folk didn't even talk about Jesus. Now you find Jesus where he isn't. Well, where isn't he? He wrote it. <laughs> and what gets me is I grew up. I grew up hearing preaching. That, well, probably was leapfrogging the Christ, but they talk about Jesus. Folk got saved when preachers leapfrogged to Jesus. Wasn't Jesus, wasn't even that, but they talked about Jesus, and folk got saved. But now we're so technical and precise, and everybody disagrees, Mm. Christotelic and Christocentric and Christo this, and this, this, this. I'd rather see people get saved, Mm. even though... Mm, this may not be a direct linkage to Jesus mm. than for folk to argue about whether or not Christ is here and Christ is not mentioned and folk don't get saved. Mm. I just, I mean, I just, I find it really, really something. He's all in the book. The Bible is a hymn book, it's an M I M B O O K which means it's about him now unto him who is able to do exceeding above all, mm. above all we can ask to think according to the power that It's about him. Right. So if the book is about him, wh- 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 why are we splitting all of these theological and homiletical and hermeneutical hairs? Mm. Just preach Christ. I'll know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Well, Paul, you, what, you know a whole lot of things. Yeah, but the main thing I know is Jesus, because he's the one who died. Mm. And he's the one, that you can talk about theories all you want, but I won't talk about Christ. See, that's, that's, that's why I am on that. mm. That's good. I do think, though, that the uh,
0: the critique can be valid sometimes. There are some preachers that every sermon ultimately comes back to, well, the character here is a sinner. Later Jesus died for us. Yeah. Now we need to repent of our sins. And, be yeah. saved. and every sermon in an attempt to become Christ-centered can end up being not just the same message, of course, we want to preach the gospel in every message, the same sermon. It just becomes this sort of rote, Christ-centered formula. How do you avoid that? How do you, how do you remain faithful to the text without having this sort of algorithm that at some point in the sermon, you're going to plug it in, and then it's going to be the, the same, essentially, from week to week to week.
1: Well, you know, Billy Graham was just like that. Mm-hmm. And the people criticized him. Same thing. And then we turn around. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story Mm. of Jesus and his love. I come from the black tradition. My pastor could be talking about adultery, but one Friday he died. Mm. But on Sunday morning he got talking about tithing. One Friday it didn't, because they believe that in every sermon, there had to be a presentation of the death and resurrection of Jesus no matter what you Now, is that irresponsible they didn't want you to forget mm. that it was his Paul spends one whole chapter 1st Corinthians 15 to talk about the indispensability of the death and resurrection of Jesus if Christ died but is not risen then you and I are participating in his interview and all of y'all are sitting here and we're doing it in vain mm. it's just that important so I understand that but that needs to be some oldness, even in our newness, so that we never forget the irreducible core of death, burial, resurrection. I mean, the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, mm. dead, and buried. There are three expressions crucified, aren't you dead? No, that's not it. Dead, aren't you dead? Mm. And uh, buried, what? Because that's that important that Christ died but got up on Sunday morning. Mm. So I want to mix, I want to mix, I want to put some new wine and new wine skins. I understand that, I understand that. But there's something about the oldness that must remain in our preaching mm. and not uh, be up for the, the, you know, the newest trends, the novelties. Our, our preaching sometimes can become too, let me create a term, novelistic. Hmm. And so the the fashion thing homiletically, let's going, We're gonna move this, and then we're gonna no, 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 no. I'm gonna stay with what Paul preached, and that's what what why uh, Luke writes his second second book in Acts. Those things that Jesus first began to do and to teach, these are the things we're gonna to continue to talk about.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's good. One of the themes in your preaching ministry as someone who's traveled with you and been in the crowd a lot when you're preaching is I've often had people come up to me afterwards or during the sermon even and say, kind of nudge me and say, only Robert Smith can do that. Or they say, you know, you can't do that. You can't sing like that. You can't have that kind of cadence. He has that special gift. And I think I think a lot of times they say that because there is this... Um, performative power that may be the wrong word but word. performative power to your delivery to your sermons I, I was looking back through old preaching notes and you said once you said work hard on your delivery you've worked hard on your content yeah, that's true could you talk a little bit about the role of preparing for delivery not just to be clear or concise but to deliver it in a way that's compelling that's um, that shows the commitment to the the stage, the the theater of preaching, the performance of preaching, Mm -hmm. and not just to the doctrine of preaching.
1: The Latin word, tenere, means to entertain. Mm. Now, we have problems with that, but what it really means is to entertain in order to hold the attention. Mm. If you have something good to say, but you can't hold folks' attention, then what good is it? I've got to be able to, and the, the, the Bible is not dull. We just make it dull the mm. way we present it. An empty wagon makes a whole lot of noise. It really does. Mm. So it's important for the first 30 seconds when you open your mouth to preach. Communication experts tell us that if you don't say something that is interesting and engaging in the first 30 seconds, people will immediately check out. Mm-hmm. So I must not open up with some kind of uh, joke. Well, this is an icebreaker. There's no ice. you just got finished singing, there Fire all over the place, and you're going to come up with some joke. Man, get in it now. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Uh, the other thing um, is we were in Scotland. I was preaching over there a few weeks. And uh, their tradition is a tradition of preachers singing their sermons. They still do it. Mm. The Welsh sing sermons. Go to the Appalachian Mountains. They, all of us have a song. Mm. I'm not talking about patterning. I'm talking about having cadence and rhythm. If you walk up the steps and you don't have rhythm, you're going to fall and trip walking up. You've mm. got to have rhythm. And therefore, in your preaching, there has to be a certain rhythm. There has to be a certain uplift Mm. and suspension, and then slowing down, and softening the voice. It's like singing the song, How Great Thou Art. You start real low, you go slow, then you rise. Then sings my soul, Mm. but you start it off, Oh, Lord, my God. Mm. You build it, you build it, you build it. And preaching ought to be that way. It's not a performance. Mm. It's... It's a way of holding the attention of people so that you're not monofacial, you're not monorhythmic, you're not monotonal. Mm. Uh, there's color. You have color in your preaching. Mm. I know you're white, but you got color. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm Thank talking you. about. You know what, he's, what you said yesterday? I said, this is my son. And then you said, don't you see the resemblance? That's right. That's but right. it's true. Father and son. It's true.
0: So. Well, so I think a lot of people hear you say that and they think, well, that sounds great, but I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah, I, mean, I can remember preaching a sermon for you, just you and me in the room. Yeah. And you looked at me and you said, you need to hear this. You have an ugly face when you preach. <laughs> <laughs> and I went back and watched, and sure enough, there's this scowl the whole time. And I, nobody ever told me I, I look furious the entire sermon. But how do you get there? I mean, what are the practical steps you can take? Yeah. Maybe we're not going to sing at the end yeah. of all of yeah, our yeah, sermons. Yeah, yeah. But how do we become preachers who are compelling? How do we become preachers who know how to tell a story? What are the, what are the steps you take to get there?
1: You tell a story because stories don't have points. Stories have moods, hmm. moves and moods. There's an antagonist, there's a protagonist, there's a plot, there's suspension, and all of that. For instance, Paul says to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Mm. You notice when Jesus read from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Bible says when he closed the book, Luke 4, 20, and sat down, all eyes were upon him, the way he read it. Mm. Now, if you were to read, I want you to quote for me. Philippians 4.4 4. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Mm. Say that. I'm going to look at your face. I want to hear how you say that. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord
0: always and again I say rejoice. Why are you smiling? I don't know because I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> Alright
1: now I want you to quote for me from the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Woe unto you snakes, you vipers, whited sepulchers, mm. you hypocrites, you cross land and sea to make one convert, and once that convert, a proselyte, has been converted, you make that one a, chi- a two-fold child of hell. Yeah. Mm. I want you to quote that. Now I won't see are gonna you, gonna are you. Are you gonna smile on that?
0: Bible. But are you are you gonna you gonna smile? No, you no. That? You're gonna say, you know, woe to you,
1: hypocrite, yeah. You vipers. Yeah. Why? Because that's the mood of the text. Exactly. And that's what you do when you preach. Abraham's story in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Mm. It's a a serious moment. Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Well, I've got two sons. The son you love, I love both of them. Isaac, laughter, and take him into a mountain I'm going to show you and offer him up as a burnt offering, which means you burn him up. Nothing is left. Mm. And Abraham got up the next morning, which does not mean he went to sleep that night. But he got up the next morning, cut enough wood, boom. Now here it is, this moment. He's getting ready to do this. Mm. Can you see the sweat dripping? Can you feel his heart pounding? Mm. He's waited 25 years before the boy's born. He's probably a teenager, so that's about 37 years. Mm. Hand trembling. I got to slow that down. Because when I read verse 3 of Genesis 22, it says that Abraham got up the next morning, cut enough wood, and took Isaac and the two servants with him. Verse four, it says, on the third day of, they arrived at Mount Moriah. What happened between the, verse three and verse four? That's three days mm. that have gone. How are you? I mean, what do you do? Why, why three days? What do you say? What do you think? Well, you cannot not think. What do you say to God in three days? What would you say? What would you, mm. you and Rachel, you know you got to explain to Rachel, that you took and sacrificed the son because God told you she ain't going to be too happy probably. I'm the next sacrifice. Exactly. The Create a conversation. It's too, it's too, we read the Bible too fast. We mm-hmm. don't get into the emotions. Right. So that's, that's what i saying. Put yourself in the text. That's why you know I want every student of mine to read the text before they preach it. How many times? hundred times. Fifty times at yeah. least. That's minimum. Yeah. So that you... Feel everything you can smell, taste, hear, mm. touch, etc. So you can put yourself and immerse yourself. And what you're doing is taking and uh, putting on the garb of those of the 20th century BC, Abraham, and you're wearing that so that you're not in the 21st mm. century. You are in the 20th century BC. You mm. live there, mm. you feel exactly what he feels.
0: Mm. We, uh, we started about 10 after, so I'm going to ask a couple more questions, but then we're going to take some questions from you. So if you are thinking of something you'd like to ask, go ahead and prepare your questions, and then we'll, we'll have a chance to ask those. Um, one of the things I think that makes your preaching really impactful for me is knowing that you haven't just been a traveling preacher your whole life, but that you've been a pastor and pastoring is hard. It I've is. spent the last three years working with pastors. And I think the common themes that I, I heard were loneliness, pain, loss, rejection, depression. Um, nothing has stood out to me more that you ever told me about your preaching ministry um, than the death of your first wife and that you preached her funeral. Um, A lot of pastors out there are preaching... Sunday comes every week, and they're preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they're preaching in pain, or preaching through pain. Um, I was wondering if you would just share that story a little bit of you preaching that sermon, because I just found it to be very powerful personally, and then talk a little bit about how do you get up to preach when you are suffering. Yeah.
1: Well, the sermon was preached on March the 9th, 1984. My wife at that time was 39. <coughs> We'd been married 15 and a half years. She had a disease that I had not heard of before. It's called lupus, of course, I've heard of it since. Mm. And uh, she passed. God asked me, do you really believe what you've been preaching? Mm. You've been telling everybody else that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience, experience, hope, and all that. You've been telling people that God will take you through the storm. You preached Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley. Now, can you allow me to use you to confirm what you've been saying so that people can see, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, I glory in my weaknesses and my hindrances and my insults and my persecutions in my Mm. difficulties for when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Mm. And God challenged me. And I preach from Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 15 to 24, the death of Ezekiel's wife, which is a symbolic action because when Mm. she died, probably of a stroke, the temple was destroyed. And Ezekiel was not allowed to weep and he was not allowed to accept food from on and on and on and on because God wanted Ezekiel to know that I'm everything you need. Mm. And so I I think it's it's, um, disingenuous for me to try to avoid, I don't mean I have something to prove to people. That's not, what I want to do is say to God, I know you can keep me if that's what you want me to do. Mama just died. It was not not mine to eulogize Mm her. I didn't. But it was for me to eulogize my wife before my children and uh, at the church that I pastored. Mm -hmm. And God used it in such an incredible way. And it meant a lot to me to know that God could keep me in the midst of the storm. We want peace in the absence of the storm. No, he gives me peace in the midst of the storm Mm -hmm. so that even when he's in the boat with me, and the storm breaks out. I can start suing him for non-support. Master, don't you care that we perish? No, stop complaining about him being asleep in the boat. Thank God he's in the boat. Mm. And if he's in the boat, the boat can't go down and he can stand up at any time and say, peace, be still. So I think it's important Mm. for us to live out our testimony and to trust to God who can take us through anything. Mm. You cannot, if you want power, Anyone who says, I want power in my preaching, that individual is asking for pain. Because mm. you can't have power without pain. Yeah. You can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. Somebody's got to die that's right. for there to be resurrection. So that's, that's, that's how I would respond to that. Mm. And I've been much too loquacious, so forgive me for that. No,
0: I've, nobody came to hear me talk. Um, I did. <laughs> thank you. Um, last question I want to ask you is just about your influences in preaching. I know... Uh, I have two parts to this question. (laughs) I want to hear you talk about preachers that have influenced you. I know a few of them, the late James Earl Massey, some others. I'd like to hear about preachers that have influenced you. And then the last thing is uh, that I know someone that has influenced you in preaching more than any famous preacher, any author, any theologian. And that is Miss Wanda Smith. Absolutely. And um, who I mistakenly once said uh, the first (laughs) half of Behind Every Great Man And before I got the second half out, I was going to make a joke. She said, not behind, beside. That's right. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the influence of of those mentors and friends and then the influence of your wife on your preaching.
1: Well, my first pastor was Elijah Lee Alexander from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I was uh, saved at seven years of age. He was my pastor. And he sought for excellence out of me. Mm. Um, I began preaching at 17. He had moved to another church, Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio. So I went to preach for him at age 19. It was a youth service. Mm. I remember that Saturday night I stayed up all night, didn't even go to bed, and I um, used his pulpit commentary along with some other things I had done. On uh, a ledger pad, 50 pages of notes, 50 pages, and he—it's uh, a long sermon. Yeah, it's a long sermon for a mm-hmm. 19-year-old. Had 20 minutes to preach, but he—he um, <laughs> he called me in the, uh, the breakfast, Bobby. That's what he called me. Do you have your sermon? Yes, sir. Let me see your sermon. I showed it to him. All oh, this, 50 pages. Can I have this? You need this? No, go ahead. He took every single page. <laughs> and tore it up. Then he said, Bobby, if you need all of that and the people haven't seen one page and you need all of that, then how do you think they're going to remember any of it? Mm. Now go get your sermon. I had less than an hour. But what he was at, he wasn't wasn't talking about don't use manuscript because that's what he did. Mm. He was saying, that is not in you. You just have, the manuscript is not your sermon. Mm. You've got to turn, he didn't use that, but you've got to turn ink in the blood. Now go get your sermon. That's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Mm. Because I thought because I wrote something down, that's all, oh, no, no. Now go get your sermon. How'd it go? The Lord used it. I mm. preached from John eight twelve. I am, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's, that's what I preach. Mm and I had less than an hour, and the Lord did more in less than an hour than I did all night just writing down stuff from a book. Mm. My mother has been an incredible influence. I wish I could talk about her more. She went to be with the Lord uh, March the 11th, 2019. Mm. Her last words to me were, I will see you in heaven. Mama had a seventh grade education, but she has been the best theologian I've studied under, the best Bible teacher. Mm. Not because she was an erudite person, but because she was an individual who had great wisdom. So she could, um, she would not know the word omnipresence, mm. couldn't spell it. It's not putting her down at all. No. But if you began to tell her what omnipresence was, was mm. she said, oh, well then God, it means God is so big that if he moves anywhere in the universe, he bumps into himself. That's the best definition of omnipresence that I've ever heard of because there's nowhere that God doesn't bump into himself because God is everywhere and God doesn't have to go anywhere. And God is so um, um, big that every (coughs) molecule, if you will, um, that exists, uh, is affected spatially by his presence. So, Mama, Mama did those kind of things for me, mm. and protected me, and told me when I accepted my call, "Little Robert, don't be a jackleg preacher." And what she meant by that Good is, advice. "Oh yeah, uh, live the life, be a person of integrity." Though she didn't use that word, that's exactly what she meant. Mm. And I will be with you. And uh, I'm telling you, all the lessons she has taught me, um, it's just amazing. Uh, From like Cain, like Abel's blood, from the ground, her voice speaks even now. So, yeah, Mm. yeah. Mm. Mama Ozella Smith.
0: And maybe some of the preacher, so beyond, so your first pastor, your Mm -hmm. mother, Mm -hmm. some of the more recent preachers who've been mentors to you in your preaching ministry, and then your wife. forget your
1: wife. Well E.L. Alexander was one who gave me discipline. George Q. Brown was a pastor who provided for me example of passion. Mm. I've never seen him. I remember going to Canton, Ohio with him to preach. We went all the way up there. They had less than 10 people.
0: Mm.
1: Didn't affect him at all. He preached the way he would preach when I would see him preach to hundreds of people. Mm because it wasn't the people out there it was the fire in him. It was the passion mm. in him. So he, he gave me an example of passion. Dr. Massey gave me an example of the function of the sermon. I was talking to you just a little bit about that. Through proclamation, this must be in every sermon, through proclamation you initiate people into the faith mm. so that you always have a, a evangelistic trajectory in the sermon through teaching you instruct people about the faith so that they mature. They need something that will enable them to grow stronger and to leave the basic elementary teachings as Hebrews, the latter part of five and chapter six talks about. But then there needs to be therapy. They need to be inspired to keep the faith. They are strong, they are mature, but they got a bad diagnosis, cancer. Someone died this week. A child like my son was killed or something like that or there's a relational rift or whatever and they come to church. What are you going to say to that person? They already say they've been initiated to the faith. They're already mature. They've been instructed about the faith but they need therapy. They need to be inspired by the faith. So you need Robert Smith to say something that will give people hope, not false hope. I'm talking about even if the circumstances don't change, God will enable you to deal with unchangeable circumstances, mm. so you can still be so that's what he gave me mm. um and then of course, um my wife is the finest Christian that I know, that's just the truth and Wanda is um an individual who, just by her presence, I tell people in com- in the congregation she'll sit maybe right here i'll say now if if I am looking there as if I'm transfixed um, I'm not ignoring you but that's my center of attention and then certain times she'll start doing this she's setting the rhythm for me I'm mm. serious moving like that and boy it just and, and that smile that comes out is it's like saying sicken to a dog is what it's <laughs> so that's that's, that's moving mm. um, when your wife is with you and enjoying the offering that you're trying to um, to deliver to the people of God
0: mm. well, Thank you uh, I will say if you're not familiar With one of those names James Earl Massey The late James Earl Massey Who's just passed in the last couple of years correct. He was uh, taught preaching at Beeson Divinity School as well And was at Anderson?
1: Yeah, Dean of the School of Theology at Anderson
0: And um, James Earl Massey is one of the finest preachers I've ever heard And uh, if you haven't read his books You need to read his books Amen so uh, if you have questions now, uh, there's going to be microphones on each side. And so just by raise of hand, they'll give you a microphone, and you can ask whatever questions you might have for Dr. Smith.
1: My brother. I was going to say,
0: if you can briefly share the story about the young man who killed your son yeah. and led you to, to go and, like, minister to him.
1: hmm I will not call his name, but he was 17 years of age. It was October the 30th, so you're talking about Halloween time. And uh, four young men came into the restaurant where Tony uh, worked as a cook. And um, the persons who were working at the counter saw there was a a robbery and they ran out. They tried to, that is, the would-be robbers tried to, I opened up the safe and opened up the cash register, jammed both, saw Tony in the back, uh, cooking uh, French fries, etc. came and got him, tried to get him to open up the safe and the um, cash register, but it was jammed, they were jammed. Three ran out knowing that they would not get any money, and the fourth one who killed my son was so angry that he stood on top of the counter and fired a shot into his heart, and uh, Tony uh, made the transition. Now, it took me a year. Uh, I was in Nairobi, uh, Kenya, with my wife, we were on a mission trip, I was preaching, etc., etc., etc. And the Lord asked me, the Lord just keeps asking me questions, Uh, do you believe in forgiveness? Yes, Lord. Do you know how to exegete forgiveness? Yes. You ever preach on forgiveness? Yes, Lord. I want you to forgive this young man. Mm -hmm. So now it's not just personal witness, y'all do this, it's not just personal address, you is personal witness. Me. I came home. I wrote him. It took him nine months before he responded. He said, I'm taking a chance. I thought you may not be the real Robert Smith and that you might be setting me up to be um, hurt or killed in prison. You know, that kind of happens in terms of payback. He wrote me back. I wrote him. We kept writing. I told him. And I'll tell you what what has happened. This is not heroic. I'm not a hero. I'm not strong in myself. I tell people that forgiveness is not difficult. It's just impossible without God. I was telling my uh, my son this. My mother broke a bone when she was uh, 15 years of age. They reset the bone. She was fine. She became, for me, the best meteorologist I'd ever known. I didn't have to watch eleven o'clock news to see if it's gonna rain or whatever. Mama would tell me, you know, it's gonna rain. I <laughs> didn't know, Mama, because there's a throbbing in my leg. I can feel it. After seventy-five years, the bone has been set, but she can still feel that. Yeah. God has forgiveness. Um, Bishop Desmond Tutu in his book, uh, No Future Without Forgiveness, says that forgiveness takes the sting out of memory. The sting. I don't have the sting anymore. I don't have a personal vendetta against him. I love him. He told me that his father never told him that he loved him. I was saying what his dad had not said. His dad had spent a life in incarceration, et cetera. And I kept reminding him, he kept asking, why do you keep writing me, Mr. Smith? Why? I told him, because God can use and turn the life around of murderers like David and like Moses and That's like right. Paul, who gave consent for the murder of Stephen. So I kept talking to him. Then he asked me, it's a moving question, even though there were not you know, there's no returning right now of, of letters. But um, uh, I, he asked me, whenever I get out of here, what would it be like, how could I teach at a school like the one you teach at? He doesn't know that there is an Antonio Maurice Smith scholarship for an African American who has financial need to go to that school. Now people will say, "Oh, that never happened." But if God can raise the dead, God can do that. And I love one day for Tony and this young man to be around the throne of God worshiping. I've seen this happen in 2000, Amsterdam. Nate Saints, one of the four, you know, along with Jim Elliot, et etc. in Ecuador, um, was killed. On the stage, there was Nate Saint's grandson, as I, as I recall it, Nate Saint's of course, did, who stood next to the murderer of that boy's grandfather. Both are Christians, both are saved, both had their arms around each other. Mm. The murderer of his grandfather and the grandson, and you say, God can't do it. So that's, that's, that's what has been happening. Um, I got the throb. It's not here, it's here. Cause I missed Tony. But the sting is gone. We used to sing in our song. Um uh, uh I I don't hate nobody in my heart. In my heart, in my I don't hate nobody. The throb is gone. And God has taken it away. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The sting is gone. Throb's still there, let me know. I miss it. It won't happen until glorification. Then the father will be gone because there will be no more death. And there will be a reunion that will never be broken.